Jazz assistant coach Scott Morrison. He goes from Prince Edward Island in Canada to offensive mind in the NBA. How to get there? Find out next. Plus, how the Siakam trade is good for Utah. I'm JP Chung. This is Round Ball Roundup on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, Equal Housing Lender. Jazz Warriors is postponed, and for good reason. There's no way Golden State can play. There's no way Golden State can play on Friday as well. It's incredibly sad what happened. Passing of assistant coach Dejan Milojevic. I go back to the Jurgen Klopp quote. He was saying soccer, most important, least important thing. That's what basketball is right now. Thoughts, love, everything with that family, everything with the Warriors organization. There's no easy way to talk about it. That group probably sees him more than their real families. That's how connected these basketball teams are. And so as Golden State mourns, the Jazz mourn with them, and it's it's incredibly tragic what happened, but Wednesday wasn't going to happen. So keep him and his family in your thoughts. He was a tremendous coach from all the people you talk to. Will coached with him in Summer League with the Spurs. Dayon had a resume before. He was a player. He was a top European coach at Mega. He was somebody that had a large personality. And I can't help but think about those kids. So keep giving them love because they deserve it right now. As for the least important thing, basketball, that the Jazz did play. They were bound to lose at some point. They lost to the Oklahoma City Thunder. It wasn't going to be a 42-game winning streak heading into the playoffs. They weren't going to finish 62-20. and 20. But they got dropped by the Thunder. And really entertaining game from start to finish. Especially with the way that it started for Utah. It wasn't good. Down double digits to Shea Gildas-Alexander. He has 10 in that first quarter. Chet right there nearly with him. Then for it to become nearly a one-point game if Simone Fintecchio hits a shot at the end, it's really close. They lost out because of the bad start. 40-plus points in the paint in the first half, 14 in the second. That's the margin of error. They lost it right there. It's because they have a top-10 player on the other side. You know from listening to the podcast, I am very high on the Thunder. I thought that they would be a top four team in the West. SGA is a top 10 player, no doubt, behind the big guys. You look at Jokic, Embiid, Giannis, those three, Shea's in that second group. He's with the Lucas, the Tatums. And he was spraying open shots. He was getting his own shots. He got to the free throw line a bunch. His pump fakes were getting people to bite. It's difficult to evaluate a game like that for the Jazz 
because they don't have that type of guy. They don't have a top 10 player. And similar to the Phoenix loss earlier this year, Durant's going to get to his spot, and he's going to hit his shots. That's what 1A guys are paid for. So it's encouraging that they battled back, but now they're on the road. Long road trip. I'm going to be on the front end of that. I'll be in Houston, New Orleans, D.C. Then I come back, do TV. Then they finish up with two in New York against the Nets and Knicks, and they're back home for the All-Star break. Save for one game in Phoenix. But that's the schedule. Siakam, that's what I wanted to hit on in the open. Because it relates to the Jazz, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Raptors receive Bruce Brown, Kyra Lewis, Jordan Wara, two first-round picks, and a conditional 2026 first-round pick. The Pacers receive Pascal Siakam. And watch it Monday. He fits what Indiana's doing. They don't play defense. He adds a little bit of that, but they don't lose everything offensively. They have a really, really good offense. That's what Rick Carlisle does. He has a really good setup man with Tyrese Halliburton, the best in the NBA. People want to play with him. I'm sure that's why Siakam is in Indiana, and that leads to why it's good for the Jazz. He doesn't go to Indiana unless he's thinking about signing with the Pacers. They're going to get him on some sort of deal after this year, and he's going to get a lot of money because Indiana had the cap space to do it in the offseason. Pre-agency. That's the new word in the NBA. Talk to a general manager. Talk to a decision maker. Players want to sign a deal that maximizes their earnings. Make the tough decisions later. You find a way to get a trade outside of places. But Siakam goes to Indiana as opposed to Golden State because of the CBA. The idea behind this new CBA was to spread the talent. Warriors are in the luxury tax. Everybody knows that. So it makes deals tougher, more punitive. They can't aggregate contracts and trades. They can't send out first-round picks. There's a pick freeze in their future. So if you're a GM and you're talking to your owner trying to make decisions down the road, should we go to the luxury tax? A smart GM would say, I don't think that's the best course of action because it limits our options. Down the road, we won't be able to use picks. We won't be able to trade players. It gives you less flexibility. So cap space doesn't need to be used in free agency. Be trades. Be absorbing contracts. Renegotiating those deals in the offseason. That's where it can go. This is a win for the non-glamour franchises. The teams that always get mentioned in the talk shows as landing spots for the star players, even if they're not realistic options, they lose for the CBA. If they aren't prudently run, they can't trade for these guys because they can't pay them. So you wonder if star players are willing to go to the non-glamour places to get their money, to maximize their earnings. Siakam just did it. As the talent spreads across the NBA, it's a good sign for Utah. Five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. Scott Morrison, 
jazz assistant coach. He came onto the scene because of Team Canada beating Team USA in the World Cup. Will Hardy wore the Canada red in a pregame press conference against the Raptors. That's where he came on everybody's radar. And he's my guest today. Talked about that, life in the G League, how he's affecting the Jazz right now. He is crucial to the Jazz offense, how it hums, and explain his job. So please enjoy. It's Scott Morrison on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. What was the back and forth between that game between the U.S. and Canada? Well, uh, Coach Hardy and I tend to talk a lot of junk um, to each other or anyone that will listen or, or ignore us. So we were uh, obviously um, trashing each other about our respective countries in a, in a fun way, and uh, we decided to put a little wager, a friendly wager, on who would finish higher in the tournament. This was before the tournament started, so the bet was if uh, Canada finished higher, he would wear the Canada shirt or, or jacket at the time of my choosing. And if uh, USA finished higher, I would wear an Uncle Sam costume uh, on a road trip. So I was quite happy to wear the Uncle Sam costume. It would have been pretty funny. Um, but it just so happened that it came down to the final game, Canada versus USA. So put a little bit extra uh, intensity on it. And I um, uh, was pretty happy that we came out on top. And I know all of my uh, celebrating and, and trash talking since is probably going to come back to haunt me when uh, – Durant and LeBron and all these guys decide to the play Olympics, next year, but yeah. <laughs> I'll take my chances and, and uh, enjoy the win while I can. But this is a pretty good time for Canada basketball. And to be there in the World Cup is pretty cool to see. Oh, no question. Um, I've been involved with Canada basketball for over 10 years now, so I've been part of some ups and part of some downs, and um, all of us that have been through the, the cycles of trying to qualify and falling just short the last few times, uh, this is a special moment to qualify for the Olympics and to medal in the World Cup. And um, I was sad that I wasn't over there with the team, but I was happy to have a little bit of a part of uh, helping them prepare and um, communicating with their coaches. So kind of uh, everyone that's been a part of the program for the last few years has a sense of pride over what this team accomplished for sure. Tell me about growing up, because if I understand it correctly, small town, grew up playing for your father at one point, become the all-time leading assists and three points player at your college how did you develop a love for the game just uh through my parents really uh my dad dad and mom were both coaches they coached high school before i was born i believe and then my first memories are really in the university of prince edward island gymnasium uh my dad's practices he coached the women's team first um maybe my earliest memory now that i think about it is getting drilled with a ball in the face um as like a three-year-old a four-year-old uh one of the practices and uh, that's kind of how I grew up. It was, it was, uh, I was very blessed to have that uh, childhood, um, the small town part, and I wouldn't even call it a town. We didn't have any stoplights or anything. It was uh, basically a village, uh, and he would commute to uh, the city, quote-unquote, right. about 20,000 people where the university was, and uh, just got to be part of the road trips, the practices, the team meetings, I, and I just evolved from, like, the mascot to the ball boy to the water boy to the manager to the video guy. And then by the time I graduated high school, I was good enough to play. So, um, you know, uh, it, was a, it was a cool way to grow up and 
it gave me a, a good foundation for learning the game and understanding the game and uh, a lot of great experiences that some kids don't get to get to have. Were there added pressures playing for your dad? I mean, it's not it's not like playing for Duke or something like that. You know, it's a, it's like basically the Division two level. And I know obviously you want to win and people hang the banners when you do and things like that. My freshman year, we fell just short of a conference championship. And then it was all downhill from there. So I like the joke that I got my dad fired. Not the best joke, obviously, but he recovered pretty well. Um, but I left as the all-time leading three-point made and attempted. And uh, the attempts got a little bit more attention sometimes. Uh, mm. It was before the uh, Steph Curry revolutionized the shot selection and things like that. And uh, I like to say I was ahead of my time shooting all those threes. But at the time, it, wasn't, it was kind of frowned upon. And um, I think he took the blame for some of my maybe ill-advised shots. But uh, we laugh about it now. And um, like I said, I like to say that I was ahead of my ahead of my time. Well, and that sets up some things that you do later on in your career when you're studying shot selection and studying how best to generate three-pointers, right? You did a research paper when you were at the, the Celtics about three-point attempts. Yes, sir. Um, so I coached college for 10, 12 years in Canada right out of school. I was lucky to get a... A job right after I graduated and uh, after about 10 years I wanted to just take a year off and learn um, not the most common thing to do here obviously uh, Bill Self's not taking a sabbatical to go chill for a year but uh, in Canada that's kind of more common we don't make the same amount of money and um, when you top out they got to you know incentivize your contract somehow so I asked for a year off to go study the game and uh, was lucky to get uh, a volunteer position with the main Red Claws now the main Celtics of the G League. So uh, while I was there, I basically just did the laundry and drove the bus, things like that. Uh, like any intern, I was the league's oldest intern. And I wanted to do what a professor would do if they took a sabbatical, which they would study some topic and produce a paper and mainly for my own benefit. So I studied shot creation, three-point shot creation. It was the start of kind of the, what we know now is the norm in shot selection in terms of just shoot as many threes as you can, layups, threes, free throws. The Houston Rockets were kind of starting that um, revolution in terms of their G League team was just shooting threes and layups. And I wanted to prove that uh, not all threes are created equally, meaning basically dribbling down and shooting it is not as good as if you drive and kick or uh, set a good screen and, and get free off that. So I charted about I want to say 10, 15,000 threes that year and how they were created and put them all in a spreadsheet and um, basically came up with the philosophy that getting a paint touch or a paint threat to create a three is the best possible three you can get. Some coaches would say, uh, duh, we knew that already. Um, but just watching all those clips and all those threes taught me more than just shot selection, you know, watching uh, how people make reads off pick and rolls and, and off ball screens and uh, kind of brought my knowledge of how to get good looks to a whole new level. So uh, it wasn't Einstein's theory of relativity or anything like that, but um, it did teach me a lot, and, and uh, it was a good lesson for me. Morrison's theory of threes. Sure, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was, it was a thick paper of things that people could say in probably 30 seconds, but that's all right. it was a fun experience. Well, that's the academic part of the game. Yeah. How did you end up in the NBA? Because the connection came through meeting people at uh, Summer League. Well, that year... Um, there was two, two of us that were interns with the Red Claws. Myself, who I was a 35-year-old, 10-year head coach. And Jim Moran was a 35-year-old, recently retired European pro. And Jim and I both ended up in Maine, um, got to know each other, became good friends. We were 
we kind of were the the old guys from the Muppets and the and the Rafters. Wall, I forget their names. Uh, Statler and Waldorf. Yes. So we just did all the grunt work, um, worked out guys after practice, and we didn't travel with the team. So when the team would go on the road, we would drive down to Boston and just watch practice, help out whatever we could, get to know the Boston guys that way. When the season ended, they let go of the head coach in Maine, uh, Mike Taylor, who's a great coach and good was a good mentor for me too. So Jim and I were both unemployed. I still had a job back in Canada, so I was back home getting ready for the next college season to restart that part of my career. But I wanted to, having seen the G League and getting a little taste of it, I wanted to get back down and try and get a position, whether it be an assistant coach or whatever. There was two or three people in the Celtics organization that were kind of pushing for me to get a chance at the head coaching job because I had head coaching experience and now a year of, of G League experience. So um, Coach Stevens was kind of slow to decide what he wanted to do. He wanted to look at some different options. So the people that were pushing for me suggested that Jim and I go down to Orlando Summer League, which uh, I don't even know if it still exists, but uh, Celtics used to go every year. So we went down on, you know, on our own dime and got a hotel room and kind of just waited. We went to the games and, and uh, these guys were, were telling me, you know, we're going to try and get Coach Stevens to meet with you while you're here. And the week was getting down there. So I think it was the last or second last day. And uh, Jim and I were getting ready to go to the, to the arena to watch the games. And I got a call from uh, Ron Norred, who's now with the Atlanta Hawks. Hey, hey, Brad is ready to meet with you. So I hustled down to this restaurant they were at. And Orlando in July is pretty humid. Um, so by the time I got down to the restaurant, because I was late, I was just dripping sweat. And I sit down, and uh, Coach Stevens, who I've met before but doesn't really know me, mm-hmm. is looking at Ron like, is this guy okay? Like, I'm, I have a towel, and I'm wiping myself. And Ron's like, don't worry, he's Canadian. He's not used to this weather. <laughs> um, but really, I was just nervous and in panic. So meeting went well. Um, didn't know what to make of it. Got to the arena. Uh, as soon as I got in there, uh, Danny Ainge came up to me and said, hey, I want you to sit with me for the game. Um, and I'd met Danny a couple times, too, from, from the G League, but... This was kind of a new thing to, to mm-hmm. for him to tap me on the shoulder and ask me for that. So sat with him, and then nothing came of it. So uh, Jim and I went back home, and we uh, he actually came out to Prince Edward Island uh, where I was staying at a cottage, a friend's cottage on the beach, and we just kind of hung out for a week. And uh, the second last day we were there, got a call from Brad, offered me the job in the G League. So uh, we celebrated. Jim and I celebrated. We were, he was going to be my assistant. Mm-hmm. And then the following day, he got a call from Portland to offer him a uh, video spot. So he never ended up working with me, but um, it was a great week for us kind of seeing that internship and that volunteer situation go full circle. And uh, I still think of that day and, and smile because uh, just sharing it with him and we had kind of come up together that yeah. year. And um, Jim went on to be an assistant with the Trailblazers and the Pistons. And uh, now he's the Trailblazers G League head coach. So we've done pretty good for ourselves, all things considered. And it's connections with people who you're seeing down the road. Danny's here. Yep. You know, like Joe Missoula ends up on that main Red Claws staff. How did he come into your life and, and join the organization? So I, so I did three years as a head coach in Maine. Uh, the third Before the third year, uh, I got a call from the same guy, Ron Norred, who's a friend of mine. Ron was now with the, with the Nets. And Ron had offered Joe a job. Uh, unbeknownst to, Ro- to Ron, the Nets had other ideas. So... Joe quit his, uh, he was a D2 assistant at the time. He quit his job and was getting ready to go work for Ron in Long Island. And then the Nets said, uh, no, we have other plans. Uh, you can't hire this dude. So Ron called me. I didn't know Joe. I, I kind of knew the name just from watching mm-hmm. uh, NCAA. 
so I called I called Joe and we, we kind of hit it off and uh, I offered him a job on my staff and and uh, the, kind of the rest is history. He did a great job. He actually left after that year and became a head coach at the same D2. He was an assistant, Fairmont, in West Virginia. And we kept in touch, kept comparing notes and what we were looking at for film-wise. We had that kind of common desire to learn more and watch European basketball and FIBA basketball and different levels of basketball to try and learn. So we often compared notes. And I think after two years with the Celtics, uh, Coach Stevens and I were talking about kind of revamping our player development program. And uh, I thought Joe would be the best possible person we could hire uh, to help with that. So uh, Brad put me in charge of the, of the program and uh, I suggested that he look at Joe. He knew Joe as well and he agreed that he'd be great. So they met and talked and, and uh, he hired Joe. So we got to work together for two more years in Boston. And um, obviously he's moved on to bigger and better things. And, and uh, to be honest, so have I. So it's been, been a great ride for us too as well. What was your experience in the G League? Because you talk to players and you hear that kind of test if you really love basketball at that level because you're doing everything. It's not as glamorous as the NBA. It's not as glamorous, but to be honest, these guys now have it a lot easier than they did back when I started. And that was only I seven did. or eight years ago, the introduction of the two ways. So the NBA is a little bit more invested in the players and the conditions that they're working with, uh, having their own facility, our own weight room and stuff like that. And Salt Lake was incredible. And I think it's a little bit of a aberration being here because it's so close to the NBA team and the yeah. relationship is so tight, but that's a credit to, you know, Danny and Jay-Z and Ryan and Will to kind of welcome the G League guys as part of the greater uh, organization and makes you feel part of it. And, and those jobs now are, are coveted. Uh, to get a head coaching job in the G League now is a, is a, a battle. When we hired Coach Wojo this year, it was like a dogfight for, for really good coaches to get that job. And, and uh, when I was hired, not that I wasn't a good coach, but I had a lot less experience than the guys we were looking at this past summer for, for that position. How did it come about for you? Because you were in Australia at that point yep. trying to figure out, how do I get back into the NBA? And you get a call for a G League position. Yeah. Um, so when Coach Stevens moved up and, um, and uh, stepped aside as a coaching, his coaching role, and hired Ime Doka. I didn't know Ime at all, um, but I still didn't know if they were going to bring me back or not. I had another year in my contract, so I'd, I was sitting back in Canada. My wife and I have a house there that we built during COVID, and I was kind of just waiting to see, you know, if I was going to get a call from Ime or what was going on. And uh, I read on Twitter that uh, they hired Will Hardy, and I didn't know Will at all. I've never met him, but I knew that was my spot. Uh, we were kind of the same role, offensive, offensive type. Yeah. Um, guy that was my role in Boston uh not not a former player so we weren't I wasn't gonna try and fill that seat uh so I remember saying to my wife like I think we're out that's it um and I've told Will this he wasn't I wasn't a big fan of him at the time um and nothing against him obviously he didn't know me either but it's competitive yeah yeah and human nature like this guy took my spot what's going on here um so we ended up taking the job in Perth we could have in retrospect, just sat home and collected a year's salary, which probably would have been the smarter thing to do. But I wanted to keep coaching, so we went to Perth, did a year there, learned a lot. I was glad we did it. It was a good experience. It wasn't the easiest time, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, we decided to come back home for some family reasons. Um, so we came home with no job. We were basically looking for a place to set up shop for the year, to try and network and get back in. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some work with the U23 team in Toronto, Canadian U23 team. I got a call from an unknown number. 
my phone one morning and it was, uh, it was Will. Uh, would you ever be interested in going back to the G League? Um, and I don't know if he thought I wouldn't be because I had been in the NBA before, but uh, it was the quickest yes I ever uttered up from my mouth, I think. So I uh, was very interested, just wanted a spot to, you know, get back in. It was a great opportunity to start with a organization with a new owner, new front office, new coach. Um, and even though I didn't know him that well, I was like, I, I've heard good things from the guys in Boston that, that have stayed around there, mm-hmm. my friends that have been in the Celtics. So I uh, met Will in Vegas. I think we met for like 10 minutes and uh, had the job. So um, really grateful and uh, humbled that he offered me the position. I know guys like Danny and Luca Desta and Evan Brads, uh, you know, probably put in a good word for me, but he still had to take a chance on me and um, worked out pretty good overall for me. And you're working with some of the big pieces of the Jazz, whether they're two ways or like Ochai. He was down in the G League a lot um, at the beginning of the year. You're working with guys who have NBA potential. They may not be Kevin Durant, but there are a lot of role players down in the G League. No, for sure. The G League's a great place to find your whatever, maybe sixth through tenth man. Um, the biggest thing in the G League is making sure the guys understand, like, hey, the NBA is not looking for the next James Harden down here. They're looking for the next whatever Robert Covington or um, Ochai Egbaji. So uh, we got a lot of credit last year for Ochai's development, but to be honest, it's just the like the vessel of the G League is what deserves the credit. Like Ochai got to play. That was it. Like he he's a good kid. He works hard. He got a chance to play, and, and thus his improvement came because of that. It wasn't really anything that I did. So um, but that shows the importance of the G League for the amount that the NBA guys get paid. Um, you know, the G League is a small investment to try and get a high value for the guys that you have on contract in the, in the big time. So, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Like I said, Salt Lake was a pretty good setup for the G League. Uh, being in a Delta hub helped as well. There wasn't too many connecting flights. That I, hate, I hate flying, um, so it was good for me. And uh, the Jazz were incredible. It was a, it was, it's an incredible place to work. Uh, you feel part of it no matter what role you have. And uh, can't say enough good things about how I was treated last year. I remember I came in the first week uh, hanging around practice, and, and Ryan, our owner, came up to me by name and said, hey, welcome, Scott. It's great to have you here. You know, said, talked about the G League a little bit. And uh, I remember going home to tell my wife, Suzanne, like, this is crazy. The owner came up to me knew my name. Um, you know, and I just got here. I'm a G League coach. So that was, that kind of set the tone for how it was the rest of the way. So really, really grateful to work here. No question. Now, let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, They also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. When does the call come for you to join the Jazz as an assistant coach? So we were uh, struggling in the G League, but it doesn't really matter. You know, if you win or lose, it's, it's more about, about development. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, Will called me into his office before a jazz game, I think in January, early January, and uh, which was kind of weird. Maybe he wanted to talk about offense, I wasn't sure. And then he said, wait, I'm calling in uh, Jay-Z, Justin as well. So, all right, this is different. Uh, they came in, he's like, we want you to know that whatever happens, we're gonna bring you up to the jazz next year. And basically he was doing me a solid by telling me this so I could you know, stop panicking about how I'm gonna support my family right. and where, where am I gonna, going next? Are we moving for a third yeah. time, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the reason he told me earlier. So uh, I had already been humbled already once with the Celtics when I left. So I wasn't getting uh, you know too crazy, but I was very happy. I think I might've shed a tear or two um, because it was a long two years to get back. And I wasn't sure if I was gonna get back. Um, I didn't know what role, he didn't know what role, but he just said, you're gonna be here, you know, settle in. So um, that was big for me, kind of made me relax a little bit with our own team, the Stars. We actually ended up going on a pretty good run, made the playoffs, and, um, um, you know, I had no regrets with how we handled that season, but it was also nice that knowing in the back of my mind that no matter what happens here, you're gonna be okay uh, for the next little stretch. So season was over and uh, coach brought me into his office again for our, our year-end meetings, and. Uh, that's where I learned I was going to be in the front bench and one of the top assistants and uh, might have shed a tear that day too, um, just knowing that this was a, a blessing to be here and uh, knowing that I found kind of a great fit for myself, uh, which is what anyone, any coach, that's all they ever want is to be a place where you fit in, where you feel valued, where you can contribute and be part of a, a greater good. So that's what we are trying to do here and I think my expectations have been uh, exceeded. How are you contributing? What are the dividing of responsibilities among the assistants and where you fit in? Well, well, Will did a great job, I thought, of kind of defining our roles. That's another thing that assistant coach needs is, yep. you know, what's my role? What's expected of me? What's my responsibilities? Who am I going through? Who am I working with? Things like that. So he did a, uh, we did a coach's retreat before, you know, training camp started and the first 10 minutes was that. And, uh, I thought that was a genius thing to do. Um, everyone understands what their what their expectations are, what their role is. My role is basically the offensive kind of leader, I guess, as on the assistant side. So guys will contribute. It'll kind of go through me. Everyone has a voice, um, but I guess I have the final piece of input to, to coach. So um, that's part of my role. Um, I work with John Collins. Most of us have a, one or two players assigned to us to work with. The guys on the on the front bench who have a little bit more scouting responsibility have less players to work with. The guys who have less scouts have a couple more players. It all kind of evens out, and uh, we take it from there. So um, Will and I get along really well. Um, ironically, after the how we, we started, started back, back yeah. in that summer, um, but we we have I think a common bond that we are uh, sarcastic to a fault and uh, like to crush each other and everyone that will blocks in our path, but we can also snap back at the, you know, at a moment's notice and be locked into whatever the job or task or goal at hand is. And uh, that's kind of, that's what I meant by being a great fit. Like that's, that's the kind of style I like to be. I like to be able to joke around, but also lock back in and, and be serious when, when it's called for. Um, what's the point of doing this stuff if you can't smile and have a laugh every now and then? Uh, we get treated pretty good. We're spoiled. It's the best job in the world as in terms of a a basketball or a sports coach. Um, obviously, there's hundreds of people fighting for these jobs, and you got to do your work and, and do a good job, but, but why not enjoy it while we're here? He did tell me to ask you 
what's the deal with all the drinks that you have in coaches' meetings? All the proteins, the health drinks that you're trying to put in your body. Man, we got like five nutritionists here. Okay. Uh, so Taking their, advantage of Their it. job is to have these guys like operating at the highest level, the players. So I figure if there's something set out in the kitchen, uh, that's what I should be putting in my body. Okay. Uh, so if there's blue, yellow, red shots out there, I'm drinking them. I don't know what's in them. They taste awful. Um, but I have enough bad habits when I leave here that I better put some good stuff in there to make sure it all cancels out. You don't even know what it is. I think there's some cayenne or something in there. Okay. <laughs> Turmeric. What has led to the Jazz's turnaround? Offensively. I mean, as the one of the offensive minds on this team, seeing the way that they played in November to where it is now in January, it doesn't look the same. So what led to that offensive turnaround? There's probably a long list of things, but I would point to two main things. One, uh, and I'll give Will credit for both. We were trying to do some things at the start of the season in training camp that I think in hindsight weren't really in his vision, weren't really how he wanted to be. He was, I don't know why he was compensating for what he thought we needed to do, or maybe he was trying to compensate for some of the players' tendencies, but um, he you know, kind of switched it back to how he wants to play, which is wide open spacing, free flowing, um, guys making reads as opposed to being scripted all the time. And I think the players have really uh, adjusted well to that and thrived in that system. And also he's found a great um, mix of rotation, who's starting, who's coming off the bench, who's playing together, uh, just a whole mix of combinations, pairs, three guys on together at the same time, things like that, that, you know, there's numbers for all those things, but you have to have a good feel for it. And I think that's what he's best at is having a good feel for what's going to make each guy be their best and perform to their best level. So, you know, taking taking JC off the bench, making the sixth man again, for example, um, playing John as a five, rotating him with Walker, all these things add up to just a more cohesive unit and uh, a better fit on the court for the 48 minutes. What is it about John at the five that is working for him so well? Well, John can play other spots too, but um, with the other players that we have, for example, Lowry's a great four. Mm -hmm. um, playing Lowry at the four allows us to play Tech at the three or more. Um, the start of the season, we were trying to squeeze Lowry at the three, John at the four. Tech was getting pushed out. Tech's been our most consistent player since day one, so getting him in that lineup's been important. John at the five, he has advantages over his matchup that he doesn't have at the four. He's more athletic, he's faster, he can shoot. So teams that have a big rim protector that want to hang around a paint, John can space the floor. Teams that have a slow kind of plotting big, John, we can put John in pick and roll, he can get behind him as a roller and, and get to the rim and get lobs. So um, it's unlocking some of his advantages as well. And then walk off the bench has been great. Um, his play has really picked up, I feel like, since, since he got back from his injury. And he's been one of the best rim protectors in the league since then. He's also anchoring that second unit. So guys like JC, who maybe aren't, I'm not saying he's a bad defender. He's not a bad defender, but he's not known for his defense. Um, so that allows him to go and do his thing offensively and float around a little bit defensively. Um, just having that kind of anchor back at the rim, knowing that we can play some zone, things like that. So uh, he's just, Will's just found a great fit for how he wants to play. And uh, as long as we stay healthy, I think it'll, hopefully it'll keep rolling. What was the decision to going slick back here? Mine? Yes. Um, well, haters would say to cover a bald spot. 
I'm not a hater. I'm just... But um, I started doing it before when I had a full head of hair. I had a nice, okay. just have a nice little flow there. Free bond. Yeah. Um, but my idol growing up as a coach was Rick, Pati- or Rick Pitino. Rick Pitino and Pat Riley. Um, two slightly different hairstyles, but similar yeah. in, in spirit. Um, so when I started coaching, I think I was 24, my first head coaching job with the, it was a women's college team. Mm-hmm. I started slicking it back and the rest is history. In a suit? Uh, always suits. I was one of the few after the bubble when, um, the NBA coach association, we all voted on, do we go back to suits or do we stay with the more casual? I was one of like 20% or 18% that voted for suits. Um, not cause I'm any kind of you know, John Gotti or something like that. But I invested in all these suits. Yeah. And now I just going to say, we're not going to wear them anymore. So it's, I feel like it was a waste of money. But now that we've had a couple of years where we're wearing the more casual stuff, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back. Plus now the investment in suits goes to shoes. So um, I'd much rather put my money into shoes than suits. Well, this is a good segue to what you're doing with your son with shoes, because this is a something that, the jazz organization has been about with Joe and Renee Ingalls yeah. previously autism awareness, your son. Um, how are you using shoes to bring awareness to the situation? So I think it's worth, worth mentioning. Um, when we left Australia, we left mainly because of Max, our son. Mm-hmm. Um, he couldn't get the treatment that he, we thought he needed being autistic in Australia. That's where we learned that he had autism. Um, so we're like, we gotta get back to the States uh, and see how we can give him the best possible treatment. Uh, we had a mutual friend, the Ingalls and us, uh, Aaron Baines. Aaron played for me in Boston. We became friends. Uh, he was back in Australia when we were there. When we met uh, for lunch one day, he said, you know, you gotta talk to Joe. I'll connect you guys. So Aaron's wife connected Suzanne, my wife, with Renee. And they became, I guess, friends or whatever. They talked a lot about autism and the first thing that Renee said is you got to get back to the U.S. where the treatment's better. When we got back to North America without a job we were discussing places to live where Max could get the best treatment. We were we had no idea what we were doing so Salt Lake was actually one of the places that we talked about moving to because we could just follow what the Ingalls did with their son. Mm-hmm. Um, that was before Will ever called me so when he called me it was almost like it was a sign from someone that we're getting looked after here. Um, so that was kind of the backstory. We learned about all the stuff Joe and Renee did for the autistic community. Um, we can't fill that void, unfortunately, but we wanted to do something to try and start contributing, um, fundraising, raising awareness, whatever the case is, whatever we can do to help. And the first idea we had was to try and get some head coaches involved to raise awareness for autism acceptance. Autism acceptance, month, Autism acceptance Month is April. Some teams do at night, some teams don't. Um, so the idea was to get white Air Force One shoes decorated with the autism awareness theme um, and try to get as many head coaches as possible to wear them for a game and then get their team's media involved and raise the you know the awareness for the autism acceptance that way. So uh, it's, it was just like an idea to start things. Hopefully it'll, it'll grow to something much bigger. I think it will. It's starting to pick up some steam right now, but basically we have uh, eight to 12 coaches. Who are some of the coaches? Um, well, I just started with people that I kind of had a relationship with. So obviously Will and Joe are involved. Joe happens to be Max's godfather. So that was an obvious connection. 
We have uh, Tom Thibodeau, Frank Vogel, Mike Brown, mm-hmm. um, three or four other guys. Iffy, probably going to do it. I have a call with the head of the Coaches Association tomorrow, so he caught wind of it. He's going to try and help out. Um, but we're happy that we have a, a start anyway. Uh, we had, um, you know, Chuck from our front office has a connection with Nike. He was able to get some shoes donated for us. Uh, we have a local artist um, here that also has an autistic daughter, ironically, that does, uh, he's one of the best shoe customizers in the world. He's going to come on board and customize the shoes. So it's picking up steam. Um, I hope we can use it to start raising some money somehow. That all remains to be seen, but at least we're going to get the word out there in eight to 10 cities and have those teams kind of help us promote uh, the cause. And uh, if this can be a start for something real big, that would be great. We may never fill the shoes of, of Joe and Renee, but hopefully we can at least put a dent in it. Well, I know at least for Jacob, for Joe and Renee, this is a great spot where they made an impact, where they have the sensory room in the arena. They've tried to bring in Culture City as a, a place to that can make Delta Center home. Yeah, no question. It's a, it's a like any other community, the autism community is, um, it's a small world type of deal. Just yesterday, I got a text from Micah Potter, who's one of our two-way players, played for me in, in Salt Lake last year. He was sitting on the plane beside a guy who does autism work for trying to make uh, airports more autism friendly. Right. And he had heard about my story as well and wanted Micah to connect us. So that was just something that happened yesterday. So that's a guy that I'm going to reach out to today. And uh, I don't know where this is all going to lead, but uh, I guess our goal is just to try and do some you know, small part in helping kids like Max be accepted down the road and make their lives a little bit easier as they get older because, um, you know, he's got his challenges ahead of him, just like all the other kids that have autism and adults that have it. So um, I'm not sure what the future is going to look like for him, but we're going to do whatever we can to try and do our part to help out. So worthy cause? No, no question. There's a, I don't know the exact number. I probably should off the top of my head, but it's something like one in 40 kids right now is um, being diagnosed with autism. So Every kid looks different. Every kid's um, situation is different, which makes it harder too. But uh, the more acceptance and awareness and talk that we can we can have will be will be a help. We will keep an eye out for that. He's assistant coach Scott Morrison on Ramball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your story and spending time. Thank you. Thank you for having me.